morning again. I ask that you open your Bibles to the book of Ephesians chapter 1. We're obviously going to continue our series in the book of Ephesians. I ask that you stand with me, we'll pray, and we're just going to jump right on into things. <clears throat> Father, we come to you with that prayer, that you would show us Christ, our greatest need the greatest need of our souls, the greatest needs of this world, is to see Christ. And so, Lord, we pray we see you. It is you, Jesus, of which we're going to read. It is you, Jesus, of which you will reveal yourself through your Holy Spirit to us. May we have the eyes and the ears to hear and understand what you say to us this day. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. The book of Ephesians, chapter 1, beginning in verse 15 to 23. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? According to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and all. It's the word of the Lord. You may be seated. If you remember in our studies of uh, Ephesians so far, that the first 14 verses was one long Greek sentence. It's actually the same for our text for today. It's one long Greek sentence. Um, Punctuation in English has no bearing on it. But for 14 verses, Paul had eulogized the incredible salvation of God that was planned from the foundation of the world, purchased by the blood of Christ, preserved for us through the Holy Spirit. Paul tells the church that he remembers them and he prays for them. And his prayer, as you remember, it would be these four things of which we've been working off, that they would know the person, the promise, the power, and position of Christ Jesus. He says in verse 17 that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. That is, of Jesus Christ. He prays that they would not just have knowledge about Jesus, but have an intimate knowledge of Jesus. A knowledge that can only come through the Holy Spirit. He prays that they would, not, they would know Christ experientially and intellectually. We must make knowing Christ intimately the priority of our lives as his adopted sons and daughters. If we only have knowledge, head knowledge, then as we have said already, we will be left with theology and rules. Again, to quote Paul Tripp, when Christ isn't central in the life of a Christian, his Christianity will always get reduced to theology and rules. We don't want to know Christ the person through theology and rules. Those are important. But we want to know Christ. We want to see Christ. Paul prayed that they would know, have a knowledge 
of God in Jesus Christ. And they would, now he says, he can ask that they would have the knowledge, the understanding of the promise. Today we'll look at the promise that is ours in Christ Jesus. Paul prays that the effect of having the spirit of wisdom and revelation, revelation, remember, illumination, And the knowledge of Christ Jesus result in the eyes of their hearts being enlightened. Look what it says in verse 18. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. What does Paul mean by the eyes of our hearts? The eyes of our hearts. You know, our eyes are called the window to the soul. You can tell a lot about a person By looking them in the eyes. If someone can't look you in the eyes, probably there's something wrong, right? That's usually a good indication that something's wrong. Parents, particularly moms, can know what's going on with their children by their eyes. If they're happy, sad, worry, lying, or telling the truth. Have you ever seen a person who has been severely traumatized or something really Just horrible things have happened. They've experienced something. They develop what is called the thousand-mile stare, where they just look out. They look right through you. They just see. This happens to people in war when they're war-weary or when great trauma has happened to somebody. They're emotionally unengaged. They're detached. They're disengaged from everything. It's horrible to see a person... Devoid of hope. Our eyes tell an awful lot about us. You can tell when somebody is happy. But Paul's not talking about the eyes, the physical eyes. As important as they are, they are not actually our most important eyes. Paul prays that the eyes of their heart which have the ability to determine their disposition, would be enlightened. If the eyes of our hearts are not enlightened, one cannot begin to grasp the mystery of God revealed in Christ Jesus. So obviously the eyes of the heart are spiritual eyes. They're not physical eyes. They're eyes in which we see with our our intellect, with our emotions. They're, They're given to us by God. What is it that God wants us to be enlightened to? What does it mean to have our hearts, the eyes of our hearts enlightened? I think John Stott, the late John Stott, uh, has it correct. He says, in biblical usage, the heart is the whole inward self, compromising mind as well as emotion. So the eyes of the heart are simply our inner eyes, which need to be opened or enlightened before we can grasp God's truth. In order for them to see and know Christ, Paul prays that these inner eyes would be enlightened. That's what it says in verse 18. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance and saint. The word enlightened, a photizo, bring to light, to shine upon. That God would make clear to them Who he is in in Christ Jesus. How he has been revealed to them in the person of Christ Jesus. 
They would know all about their great salvation, which is planned, purchased, and preserved in Christ Jesus. We've quoted it for the last few weeks now, but Ian Hamilton correctly states it. Of all the important and pressing needs of the Ephesians, of all the important and pressing needs of the people of Bible Baptist Church, Paul recognized that their greatest need was the enlightening ministry of the Holy Spirit. You realize that that is our greatest need, is to have the eyes of our hearts enlightened through the Holy Spirit. I don't know what's going on in all of your life. You don't know what's going on in my life. You might be on the precipice of something where if this deal doesn't fall through or this doesn't happen, we're going to go off the cliff financially or physically or whatever it would be. That's an important need. But greater still than that is the need to have the eyes of the heart heart enlightened through the Holy Spirit to all that God has for you. How sad it would be to have perfect physical sight but be spiritually blind. To be spiritually blind. Isn't that what Jesus said the Pharisees were? You were spiritually blind. How can it be? You have the law. You have the prophets. Yet you cannot see. The purpose of praying that the eyes of their hearts are enlightened is that they would know. Not just they would know about, as we've said, but to know deeply and intimately so that they would have hope. Look again what it says in verse 18. And in case you're wondering, if you haven't figured it out yet, we're going to take it verse by verse. We're going to take it word by word, this study of Ephesians. It says, having the eyes of your heart in light that you may know. What is the hope to which he has called you? What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? As we've often said, we must be careful to understand the words of Scripture. Because the words of Scripture alone are the words of life. The word may know in Greek is in the perfect tense. And it gives us actually a greater understanding of what Paul is trying to convey here. May know, oida. It refers to the past act of seeing with the present effect of knowing what was seen. The past act of seeing with the present effect of knowing what was seen. Have you know what God has done? You know who God is? You've seen God work in your life? You hear about God? You've learned the truths of God? Paul is saying that you've seen that. You didn't really understand. But now I pray that you, the effect is that you know. You really know who God is. What is it that God, that Paul prayed in his great eulogy, or said in his great eulogy, that has already been made known to us through the lavished spirit of wisdom and insight? It's found in verse 9. What was Christ's purpose of salvation? Why did God save you? Why did God save me? We all know it's because we weren't such a great, wonderful person. Matter of fact, Scripture makes it quite clear it's the opposite. God saved you and I, as verse 9 says, to make making known to us the mystery of His will, according to the purpose which He set forth in Christ. 
So what is it that God wants to enlighten our hearts about? What does He want us to know about Him that we need further illumination on? I think John MacArthur has it right. It refers back to his eulogy. He says he prays for God to enlighten them about the magnificent truths of election, predestination, adoption, redemption, forgiveness, wisdom and insight, inheritance, and sealing and pledge of the Holy Spirit about which he has just been instructing them. He prays that the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened to these great truths and that will cause them to have hope and know, not just have, but know the hope of Christ's promise. Look again at what it says in 18. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened that you may know what is the hope, the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Hope is ellipsis. It means to look forward with confidence to that which is good and beneficial. Someone who does not have hope, someone who is devoid of hope, has the thousand mile stare. They have nothing to look forward to. What do you have to look forward to? Well, I really hope this, and I really, we have hopes and wants and desires in the world. Yes, that's how God made us. There's nothing wrong with asking God for them. But is our ultimate hope in heaven? Our ultimate hope, and again, we know that hope is not like I really hope it happens. It's confident. It's knowing it's going to happen. That one day, when He leads us out of the valley of the shadow of death, where is He going to put us? At a table in the presence of our enemies. Because His rod and His staff has protected us. Our hope ultimately is the glory of God Himself. It's what it says in Romans 5.2. Through Him, that is through Christ, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in what? The hope of the glory of God. As Paul writes to the church in Corinth, he says this in 2 Corinthians 4.6, For God who said, let light shine out of the darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The hope of the glory of God is an anchor for the soul, the writer of Hebrews tells us. Because Jesus has secured it by His own blood, and the Holy Spirit preserves it for us. This is the hope that is for us to to never be in despair about the future, about our sufferings or our failings. Hope for the child of God is secure in His love, which has been shed abroad in our hearts, as Romans 5.5 says. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Do you have this kind of hope, loved ones? Do I have this kind of hope? We have to ask ourselves these questions. We can't just take it for granted. We must test ourselves and examine ourselves to see if we're in the faith, as the Scripture tells us. It was this hope, this assurance, in who Christ was and what He has done that the ancients were commended for. Hebrews 11, 1 and 2, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it the people of old received their condemnation. Their, not condemnation, commendation. Big difference between commendation and condemnation. 
God did not come into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. So what are you hoping for? You know, the hope of God is not just for the future. It's for today. It's for right now. In times of trouble and uncertainty, God alone is our hope, the Scripture tells us. As David says in Psalm 62, 5, For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from Him. The primary source of which God bolsters our hope, bolsters our faith, is the revealed Word of God. Romans 15, 4, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. So if you're downcast today, if you feel alone, if you feel lost, if you feel like you can't go on, look to the Word of God. For there you will find the mystery of God revealed in Jesus Christ. Turn your eyes. Turn the eyes of your heart to Jesus. You know, we sing a song called Turn Your Eyes. It says, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. Jesus, to you we lift our eyes. Jesus, our glory and our prize. We adore you, behold you our Savior ever true. Oh, Jesus, we turn our eyes to you. Why do we turn our eyes to Jesus? Because Jesus conquered death. And it says, turn your eyes to the morning and see Christ the lion awake. What a glorious dawn. Fear of death is gone, for we carry His life in our veins. And why do we look to Jesus? Not only because He conquered death, because He gives us the hope of heaven, of life with Him forever. So turn your eyes to the heavens. Our king will return for his own. Every knee will bow, every tongue will shout, all glory to Jesus alone. The greatest need any of us have is the knowledge of God through the enlightening of the Holy Spirit. So when the diagnosis comes, when the child rebels, when financial hardship comes, when loneliness abounds, when it looks untenable, Pray for God to heal, restore, provide, bring companionship, and be victorious. But in the midst of praying for those, pray most of all that the eyes of the heart would be enlightened. That we would see God's great plan, purchase, and preserve salvation for us. That we would see God's purpose for us in the midst of our circumstance. It is through the enlightened eyes of our hearts that allows us to look at our present and our future through the hope of our calling. Again, what it says in verse 18, having the eyes of your heart enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance of the same? To which he has called you. Again, we need to know what's being conveyed here. To which he has called, Clesis. In Ephesians 1.18 and in Ephesians 4.4, the hope of calling means the hope which the Christian calls permits, which the Christian's call permits him to cherish. Do you cherish the calling God has for you? Not just vocationally, 
But what is God calling us to? God is calling us to heaven. That he would bring us to him one day. Do you cherish heaven? Well, I'm not there yet. How can I cherish it? Oh, no, you can cherish it. You can look forward to it. You can savor it. You can look at the book of Hebrews chapter 11 and see those who cherished it from afar. Who said, I'm willing to suffer. I'm willing to go through this because I know what waits at the end. See, this is not cherishing like a prized baseball. Right? If you have a prized baseball that, you know, Babe Ruth signed, we'll say Babe Ruth. Or for, for you people who like the Yankees, uh, Derek Jeter. If you like the Mets, um, you know, pick your favorite Met. Um, they sign the ball. What will you do with it? You put it in a little glass case and you'll put it on a shelf. And you may show people occasionally. But the cherishing that God gives us is not something we put in a box and put on a shelf. And look at occasionally. Something that lives inside us. It's something that's with us every single day. The ultimate calling of God is heaven. It's to the wedding banquet of the bride. Another interpretation, actually, of what is of, of to which he's called is an invitation to a banquet. The old song I'd sing as a kid. He has invited me to his banqueting hall, and his banner over me is love. He's invited me. He's invited you to his banquet. We cannot overstate this truth. God has called us not only to future hope, but to present hope, to hope right here, right now. And it is this cherishing of our calling, which has the power to help us to act according to our calling. We are to act according to our calling. The late John Stott says this in his commentary. He called us, God called us to Christ and holiness, to freedom and peace, to suffering and glory. More simply, it was a call to an altogether new life in which we know, love, obey, and serve Christ, enjoy fellowship with Him and with each other, and look beyond our present suffering to the hope, look beyond our present suffering to the glory which will one day be revealed. This is the hope to which He has called you. So Paul prays that the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened that they would know the glorious inheritance that is theirs in God's, as God's adopted children. Again, verse 18, Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, and what are the riches. I can tell you this, God is, God is not stingy. God is a generous, generous God. And some of us may be saying, Really? I wish He'd be generous in the way I want Him to be generous. No, God is generous beyond what we can imagine. A good measure, pressed down, shaken over. He says, don't you, do, you, do you not know that if you trust me in this, that I will pour out from heaven the blessings that you cannot contain? What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Glorious here is the word doxa. It literally means heaven. It's the inheritance, 
kleronomia, a valuable possession which has been received. So it's a heavenly inheritance that we would know our calling, we would know our hope of the glory of heaven. Where has God blessed us? How did Paul open up this great eulogy? He has blessed us where? Verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father, Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Where does every good and perfect blessing come from? From the Father of lights. If you remember from a few weeks ago, there was a question about who's the inheritor here. Is it God or is it us? We are God's inheritance and He is our inheritance. Verses 11 to, four, 11, 11 to 14. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works out all things according to the counsel of the will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. And as we saw, God marked us out, predestined us to be His inheritance, and He becomes our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. The hope of the calling of God is that we with enlightened eyes would know the hope of our calling and the glorious inheritance that we have in the saints. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Because of the glorious inheritance of God is ours, is for the predestined and adopted children of God through the blood of Christ, we must therefore be actively engaged in the life of the church and with each other. It's with the saints. It's with the people of God. God never does, never, never, never entered God's mind, as way, at least I can see in Scripture, that we should come together on a Sunday and then walk away and not really deal with each other throughout the rest of the week. He's called us to be intimately involved in each other's lives. This is not an hour a week and we're good. Nowhere in Scripture, if you can find it, show it to me. And I will stand corrected. God wants us to really love each other. First John told us, how do we know that we love God? Because we love the body of Christ. We love the saints. Hebrews tells us, do not forsake the gathering of the saints. And that's not just a one day a week thing. What did the early church do? They gathered daily. They prayed daily. They broke bread daily. They shared their possessions together. Nothing's changed. Will it look exactly the same as Acts 2 for us today? No. But are we seeking to get to know one another? To build one another up in the most holy faith? Are we calling one another, encouraging one another? I'm just as guilty as anybody else. Please, I'm not trying to call you out, not call myself out. God has never designed the church to live separate lives, as the old song says. 
We don't live separate lives. We're knit together. First Corinthians 12, 12 says this. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. God never designed to grow, to learn, and to mature outside of the body of Christ. And whatever they've learned in their own personal study and devotion, God says you are to bring that back to the church. You're to bring that back to the saints. You're to build one another up in the most holy faith. That's why we have Bible studies. That's why we have community groups and we have Sunday school. And all I can tell you, loved ones, is you would do yourself very well to avail yourselves of those things. You will only be helping your own soul. It is there we grow. It's there we learn. It's there we love. God wants us to know Him. And He wants us to know Him intimately. And He's given us two things. Well, three things. He's given us His Word, the church, and prayer. His Word, the church, and prayer. So we learned last week, probably many of us need to improve on prayer. And probably some of us need to improve on the church. I want to recommend to you a book that will greatly help you. It's Knowing God by J.I. Packer. Fantastic book. I'm going to read something from you from the book. It's not going to come up on the slides. Here's two things that we need to do if we want to know God. Say, I really want to know God. I want to know you. To see you high and lifted up. He writes this. Do we desire such knowledge of God? Then two things follow. First, we must recognize how much we lack knowledge of God. We must learn to measure ourselves not by our knowledge about God, not by our gifts and our responsibilities in the church, but how we pray and what goes on in our hearts. Many of us, I suspect, have no idea how impoverished we are at this level. Let us ask the Lord to show us. Second, we must seek the Savior. When He was here on earth, he invited ordinary people to to company with him. Thus they came to know him, and in knowing him, to know his Father. The Old Testament records pre-incarnate manifestations of the Lord Jesus doing the same thing, companying with men and women in character as the angel of the Lord, in order that they might know him. The book of Daniel tells us of what appears to be two such instances. Who was who was the fourth man, like a son of the gods? Who walked with David's three friends in the furnace? And who was the angel whom God sent to shut the lion's mouth when Daniel was in the den? The Lord Jesus Christ is now absent from us in body, but spiritually it makes no difference. Still we may find and know God through seeking and finding Jesus' company. 
It is those who have sought the Lord Jesus till they have found Him. For the promise is that when you seek Him with all your heart, we will surely find Him. Who can stand before the world to testify that they have known God? Can we stand before the world and say, I know God? And when we present God, we can say, they can say, you know God. God desires us to know Him, not just about Him. God desires that we would know the hope of our calling because our eyes have been enlightened. God has only called us to greatness. God is not shortchanging anybody. God would ask that we would later on, next week we'll see the immeasurable greatness of His power, that we would know resurrection power. Let us pray, loved ones, that God, through His lavish wisdom and insight, through the Holy Spirit, would enlighten the eyes of our heart, that we would know the hope of God's calling and the glorious inheritance which is now ours and forever so that we live a life that is pleasing to God, a life that would be pleasing to God for the glory of God. Father, we ask that you would help us to know you. We need so much help. Our finite minds are unable to grasp the deep riches of your word. And so we thank you that you have given us your Holy Spirit, which illumines which makes known to us your holy word. We thank you for the body of believers which encourages us, which builds us up, which corrects us, which teaches us, which encourages us, which prays for us, which lifts us up, which builds us up. Father, may we not forsake your bride. And Father, thank you that we can come to you. Thank you that when we ask you, when we ask you for wisdom, when we ask you for insight, the promises that you give, and you give generously. And so, Lord, we're asking that we would know you, that we would know your truth, and we would know your true church in this world of which confusion abounds, of which truth has gone the wayside. May we have the eyes to see. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Let's stand, let's close in a song.
and glory to the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. God bless you all.